0: In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N Podsurvey.com Artofman Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Anxiety is typically thought of as a disease or a disorder. My guest has a very different way of looking at it. It says that rather than being a burden, anxiety can actually become a benefit and even a strength. Dr. David Rosemarin is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, the founder of the Center for Anxiety, and the author of Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Today on the show, David explains why the prevalence of anxiety has risen while the reasons to feel anxious have fallen, and what the increased anxiety has to do with our growing intolerance for uncertainty and uncontrollability. We discuss how the perception of anxiety is a big part of the problem that has made anxiety a problem. Now you can change your relationship with anxiety, transforming it from something that hinders your life to something that helps you develop greater self-awareness, reach your goals, make needed changes, connect better with others, and build your overall resilience. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is/thrivingwithanxiety. All right, David Rosmarin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are a clinical psychologist and you founded the Center for Anxiety to help people who are struggling with anxiety problems. I know a lot of people have that issue. We also got a new book out called Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. where you walk readers through the tools you give your clients or patients on how to manage their anxiety, not only Manage, but like thrive with it. That's the whole point of this. I'm curious, what led you to specialize in anxiety?
1: Yeah. When I was getting into clinical psychology, you know, I really wanted to do something that was evidence based. And there are lots of different areas to focus in. Anxiety was definitely the most well researched, well understood in terms of how to do it. And uh, that appealed to me, the scientific approach. And uh, that's sort of the the first part about it. Little did I know that getting into this field, I would learn a lot about myself, a lot about the world, a lot about my patients. And it's been quite the journey. So let's talk
0: about definitions first. How do you define anxiety? Because I think it's a word now that's become part of the popular culture. Everyone's talking about it. There's songs about anxiety. (laughs) Sure. So how do you define it?
1: So anxiety is the same as fear. It shares the same brain circuitry, shares the same physiology, and it's the fight or flight system, which we all know where your heart starts beating and your breathing gets constricted and your muscles get tense and your stomach might get upset and you might feel even a little dizzy because your pupils are dilating. And, And fear, you have to start with understanding fear before you define anxiety. Fear is an adaptive, healthy thing, all right? It keeps you safe. It's the fight-or-flight system that if you need it, that's going to come into play and you'll either fight or flee from some threat. Now, anxiety is the same exact thing, but there's one small difference. It's actually a large difference, which is that there's no actual threat present. You're you're having all the feelings of the fight-or-flight system, but you're not actually experiencing a real threat in front of you at the time.
0: Okay, so fear would be... You see a bear on the trail in front of you when you're out backpacking, and then you're experiencing that fight or flight response. And in that situation, that would be an appropriate fear response. Anxiety would be experiencing that same sort of physiological reaction to thinking about, you know, going to a party and socializing. Like in that situation, like the worst thing that could happen to you is, you know, you feel awkward or uncomfortable. But I mean, you're not under actual threat in that situation. So you know, what's interesting then is that you know, despite us living in the safest, most prosperous time in human history, where there's not a lot of threats out there, anxiety keeps increasing. You know, more and more people have or report having anxiety than ever before. So what's going on there? Like, why are we more anxious despite not having any real threats to be afraid of?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and it's at the core of my new book. I actually think it's because we are in one of the most safe and prosperous times in human history that we have the highest levels of anxiety. And I'll explain that one. You know, if you look at uh, high-income countries, they have twice as much anxiety as middle-income countries. And middle-income countries have twice as much anxiety as low-income countries. And as things have become more prosperous and more safe in our society with more safeguards, and more uh, information, which we're presented with, uh, our anxiety is actually increasing substantially. And this is objective. I mean, look at the suicide rate. If you look at the levels of disability, it's not just people reporting it. So we have a big problem. The question is why, I think. And we expect to be in control all the time. We expect that things are going to go well. We expect that um, if we start a business right away, things are going to be hopping. We expect that uh, we can get the medical care that we need, that our technology is not going to fail us. And because of that, we are not resilient. We are actually very unresilient um, to anxiety. And when we experience it, even low levels, all of a sudden, boom, that cascades into a massive amount of anxiety. And I think that's what we're seeing on mass, our expectations are just unrealistic.
0: Well, here's here's a perfect example of that I've seen in my own life. Uh, the expectation that you shouldn't be able to be in touch with your loved ones and know where they are at all times thanks to cell phones yep. has made a lot of people anxious. Cause now whenever you call your spouse or you text your kid and they don't respond, you're like, oh my gosh. Something terrible happened. They're in a car wreck, right, but you know, I grew up before cell phones, and I would leave at not you know seven o'clock in the evening and go out and hang out with my friends and not come home until midnight and I don't think my mom ever freaked out about it,
1: yeah, I think it's a perfect example, like you see, hey, they read it or like, hey, they're around the corner. I can see it on the g p s but like why aren't they calling? Why aren't they doing this? why where are they? You know it's almost like the more information we have and the better things are going day to day the less, like I said, resilient we are. And that's a it's a big problem.
0: Okay, so the more in control we feel with our life, thanks to technology and all the, the, the things we have in our life, the more anxious that we can potentially feel.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned the word control, and that's exactly what it's about in reality we're not in control we're like let's 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 acknowledge it you know there's so much less that we can control than we really think day to day even with the information even with the technology even with the you know medical systems and financial systems we have in place but we don't like to live on the edge you know we don't take risks you know we don't like to feel uncomfortable we assume that even feeling uncomfortable is a disease it's not it's called being human and uh, I think we've really forgotten how to be emotionally resilient and to, to learn how to thrive with difficult emotions, which are part of life.
0: Well, that's another point in the book that stood out to me was this idea that even feeling anxiety, like people can feel anxious about that. They feel bad that they feel bad, which just, which just causes even more anxiety.
1: Yeah. The minute you feel anxious today... You don't say, oh yeah, of course, I'm working really hard. Or, oh yeah, that's because there's this news which is really, really tough for me to stomach or it's because I didn't know that something was happening. Instead we say, oh my God, I have a disease, something's wrong with me. Now if you perceive your anxiety as a disease, you're going to trigger your fight or flight system more. You're literally going to dump adrenaline more into your system and create a cascade of anxiety. So we've created this monster and the effects are are really quite problematic. Yeah, I think that's one of the
0: big problems with the popularization of psychology, of people, you know, reading psychological books or you know, consuming psychological content like lay people and then diagnosing themselves. Well, I have anxiety. And as soon as yeah. they make that self-diagnosis, they've made this, you know, normal feeling of feeling nervous because of uncertainty into a bigger problem than it needs to be. And then they it becomes it can become debilitating.
1: I would agree, but unfortunately, I think the medical field has played into this as well. This last summer, there was a panel of uh, federally funded, in fact, physicians across the United States who made a recommendation to use a very brief measure at all PCPs visits, any primary care visit. And the net result of that was that if you report any level of worry or any level of anxiety at a visit, it flags you for diagnosis and potential treatment of an anxiety disorder. Now, let me ask you, how many people have you seen this week who had no anxiety and no worry at all in the last two weeks?
0: No one. Everyone's had some. Zero.
1: (laughs) There's nobody because it's a normal human emotion. So I think that it's not only the, yes, popularization of psychology, 100%, no question. But the medical field, I would even say the pharmaceutical industry, has played into this myth of having perfect emotions all the time and in doing so has greatly disrupted our capacity for well-being and for flourishing.
0: And something you do with your work, you're working with people who have varying levels of anxiety. You have people who they're you know, mostly f- well-functioning, but they might experience just like, ah, I feel nervous all the time and I like to get a handle on that. But then there's also to the point where that anxiety becomes uh, a problem. And it, it's something you, it actually, there's a clinical diagnosis. Like At what level, at what point do you as a clinician diagnose someone with anxiety disorder?
1: yeah I mean the you know the simple answer to that question is when it causes significant distress or impairment, and that's a very subjective call to be perfectly honest. like there's no lab test to say you have anxiety and an anxiety disorder or you do not. There's no you know clear physiological neurobiological markers of these. And there's some indications of you know pathology, what we call it but but not really it's not you can't you can't use those as diagnostic for each person. So to to me, it's less about whether a person has a clinical level or a subclinical level and more about what do we do when we feel anxious? How do we change our relationship with anxiety that it's not an indication that something's wrong with us? It's not the end of our happiness and well-being. It's just considered to be part of life and something that actually can make us stronger and even thrive better. Well, yeah, that's
0: the big argument in your book. This book's called Thriving with Anxiety. You make the case that anxiety can be used as a strength in our lives. How can this thing that we see as a disorder and everyone's trying to get rid of actually be a, we'll call, a blessing?
1: Yeah, it's really simple. <laughs> it, a really solid workout in the gym, you don't feel good at the moment, right? You're sweating, you're uncomfortable, you're feeling a burn in your muscles. I mean, if you're increasing you you're know, your lifting, You know, you're lifting heavy stones or whatever it is that you you know that you got going, Um, and it it's uncomfortable. It burns. It it feels like death at one point. And if you have a trainer or someone standing over you, they're like, "Keep going, keep going." It looks like torture. I mean, you know, if you're filming it from the outside, it would be you didn't know what was going on. You'd be like, "Why is that person torturing them?" But they're not. And the person who's doing it is actually voluntarily going through that pain in order to develop their muscle tone, to develop their reaction time. To develop their cardiovascular health. And and emotional health is no different. It's no different. Going through anxiety can enhance our emotional and neural strength and make us more resilient and more capable of handling difficult situations, which, by the way, are going to come up, especially if you're pursuing your dreams and your goals in life. If you're taking the easy road, maybe not. But if you're doing something that's out there and you're You know, being a man, so to speak, and, you know, really out there on a limb and pushing yourself to the max, you're gonna feel stressed. You're gonna feel anxious. That's the way it's gonna be. And can we use anxiety to build that resilience in order to propel us forward in our goals and dreams? I think the answer is yes.
0: Okay, and I hope throughout this conversation we can discuss some of the tools you've come up with and use with your clients and patients on how to yeah use their turn their anxiety into something that can be used as a strength instead of a liability. But one of the first things you do when you have someone that comes in to see you saying oh, I've, I've got so much anxiety is you talk to them like, well, do, are you do you really have anxiety? Because you highlight the fact that a lot of times people confuse being stressed out with being anxious. Uh, So what's the difference between stress and anxiety and why is that difference important?
1: Yeah, great question. First, I'll just mention that people only ask this question if they're feeling anxious, if they're feeling uncomfortable. So here we already see how anxiety can help you to thrive because it helps you to become more self-aware and you're gonna hopefully start to ask yourself questions. Am I just stressed out by situations in my life? Or is there an imbalance between my demands and my resources, between the number of things I have to do and the amount of time, money, whatever it is that I have to accomplish, all that stuff? That would be called stress. Or is my anxiety really a misfire, if you will, of my fear system, in which case I need to take a different approach? That that would be the difference between stress and anxiety. Stress is the imbalance between uh, demands and resources, and anxiety is, again, that fear response, which is not in response to an actual threat, it's in response to something which is really in your mind.
0: Okay, so you can just be stressed when there's an imbalance in your life between um, your demands and your resources. But then you can also feel anxiety about that stress because you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to crush me. My life's going to fall apart. But that anxiety you're feeling about your stress, I mean, it could be helpful sometimes because it can help you recognize, okay, I've got a problem here that I need to do something about.
1: Yeah, anxiety helps you to unpack all of this. You know, if, if you're stressed out, like super stressed and chronically stressed, because there's just way too much to do in your life, the structure is such that you never have enough time, never have enough money, never have enough capacity to handle whatever's coming your way, then you know, your body's going to get anxious and feel uncomfortable as a sign to tell you, hey, let's check, let's recalibrate, let's rebalance, let's maybe do something and make some different choices here. Um, and that's, a, that's actually a healthy thing. So leaning into the anxiety, letting you experience it can help you to, to, to be more self-aware.
0: And so when you have a, a patient that comes to you like, okay, I'm anxious. And they're like, well, let's take a look at your life. Uh, it looks like you have a lot of stress in your life. What do you tell people to do to help manage their stress?
1: My go-to is when someone's stressed out, number one is going to be sleep. And I kid you not, I have had many patients come to me I have them go through an exercise of sleeping for eight hours a night for two weeks. And two weeks later, they have no symptoms of anxiety. They are really restored. They're rejuvenated. And basically, their body was telling them, please, please put me to bed. <laughs> you know, And uh, finally, when they listened, then, then their symptoms went away. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but that is going to be my go-to uh, for dealing with stress.
0: Gotcha. And then you also talk about exercise is a, an important one.
1: Yeah, that's my second one.
0: Getting out in nature ideally can help out a lot, and then doing things. You know, I think a lot of people these days they feel overwhelmed with the amount of news and social media they're consuming. That can just add stress that you you don't need.
1: Yeah, you know, I like to think about social media and even the news that we have as the greatest uh, social psychology experiment of all time, and it does not seem to be going well. You know, never before in history have you had a generation with unfettered access. To international news, at, at this order of magnitude, you know it's incredible what we can look up in ten seconds on our phones, and we have to be mindful of the effects of that. You know, that's that can be intense.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, if you're feeling anxious, first question to ask, like, well, maybe I'm stressed out. Look at that and do an inventory. And then, yep. if you are, get some extra sleep. I know I've noticed in my own life with sleep. I'm sure everyone else has experienced this as well. Is at nighttime? That's when you start ruminating and you start going down this dark place. Like, oh my gosh, my life's terrible. I've got all this stuff going on. And oh, this, this problem, there's just something about being tired and it's dark outside. And then it's usually at that point, it's like, I got to go to bed. If I just go to bed, all the problems go away for at least eight hours. And then I wake up and then I see those things that were I thought were problems, they're not actually problems. I feel I can take them on.
1: Sounds like you're also not your best self when you're super tired late at night. Hey, yeah. we're, you know, we got that in common. Imagine that.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, sometimes we're grownups are just big babies. Like, okay, like funny, a baby, right? you know, is the baby crying because it needs sleep and it's hungry, et cetera. And like, usually the same things can apply to grown
1: humans as well. I think that's really well put. I like that.
0: So one of the things you talk about is, let's say someone gets triggered by anxiety and they start feeling that anxiousness starting to percolate in their body, that feeling is, can be okay. Like it can be a signal that something's off and that you need to explore something. But you talk about how people can get on this anxiety spiral that takes them to a not so great place. So what's the anxiety spiral?
1: Yep, that's definitely the key here. And I think this uh, relates to what we were saying before. To me, the anxiety spiral is the reason why we have an anxiety epidemic today. The minute we start to feel a little uncomfortable, our first perception is, what's wrong with me? Something's not right here, and we start to judge ourselves and say, "Oh, I'm diseased. Oh, everyone else feels fine. Why do I feel this way?" you know? And we start to get upset about the fact that we're anxious, okay? The second thing we do is we catastrophize. I can't handle this anxiety. This will kill me. This will make me a weak person. This will make it impossible for me to function. And By the way, none of that is true. People actually function better when they're anxious, surprisingly. Often, people function better when they're anxious. But those two horsemen, if you will, horsemen of the apocalypse, the first one, the judgment of oneself, and the second one is the the catastrophizing, they actually physiologically increase the intensity of your anxiety symptoms because you're going to have a dump of adrenaline into your system. And around and around we go, that creates the anxiety spiral or the cascade, as I like to call it. Because the initial experience of anxiety met with judgment, met with catastrophizing, leads to greater levels of anxiety. And that's what's happening in our society en masse.
0: What's an example of the anxiety spiral? Like a very concrete example you might see in your practice. Let's say someone has, they say, I've got an anxiety problem around, let's say socializing, I have a social anxiety. What would that anxiety spiral look like in that situation?
1: Great. Okay, so you're in a social situation, you're walking into a party, you don't know too many people, and you're worried about making small talk. So you start to feel a little bit panicky, a little bit of a flutter in your heart, start to feel a little bit of a pit in your stomach, you feel the cotton mouth coming on, and then immediately start to think, oh no, other people are going to see I'm anxious. Oh no, why do I feel this way? I'm weak, I can't really handle this. So at that point, there are a couple things that happen. People either leave the party, or they start drinking, or... They can take a bold, bold move, which is what I'm recommending, which is to weather the storm and to say, no, I'm not feeling uncomfortable because something's wrong with me. This is just part of a new territory for me. I'm not the most social guy. I'm not the most, I'm a little bit shy. Okay, fine. So I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to build the resilience. I'm going to build that capacity and I'm going to move through. And that choice of going into the anxiety spiral or what I call the positive spiral makes all the difference in the world when we're dealing with anxiety in the moment.
0: Well, yeah, let's talk about that positive spiral. That's the antidote to the anxiety spiral. What does the positive spiral look like?
1: Yeah, the positive spiral is when we accept, I'm going to feel anxious sometimes, okay? Some people just aren't that social. In social situations, when they're meeting new people or when they're having conversations with, I don't know, superiors at work or whatever whatever it is, they're going to feel awkward. They're going to feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. You know, there's no judgment there's actually self-compassion. There's an understanding, okay, this is just my makeup. And I have to build my resilience and build my connection. And these opportunities, you know what? I'm going to do it once a week. I'm going to go into a, an uncomfortable situation. And I'm going to build that, that muscle just like I would in the gym once a week, a couple times a week in order to make the anxiety a catalyst towards thriving and growth as opposed to something that gets me down and that I get upset about.
0: Okay. So for someone who has maybe social anxiety, you're in that social situation. You have to make small talk at a party. You're feeling that that moment. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little anxious, feeling tight in the chest. The positive spiral would be like, just, okay, I'm just going to experience this. I'm not going to try to fight it. You're not going to try to convince yourself there's nothing to be afraid of. You're just going to allow yourself to feel that tightness. And then usually what ends up happening by just allowing it, it usually just washes over you pretty fast. And oftentimes the anxiety just stops after a few minutes.
1: It does. You know, a couple of years ago, this happened to me. I was giving a talk for an audience and I was not expecting to feel anxious at all. I don't usually get anxious giving public lectures, as a public speaker. It happens all the time that I, I probably give I know, 30, 40 lectures a year at this point. But But I was in this situation, and all of a sudden, I started to feel anxious. And I'm like, okay, great. We're going to build our resilience. It took, I looked at my watch, and 120 seconds later, the anxiety <laughs> symptoms were gone.
0: Yeah. And this reminds me a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy from Stephen Hayes. We've had Stephen Hayes on the podcast before. His whole thing is instead of fighting these negative emotions, just sit with them for a bit and maybe even explore them. Like what's going on there? Why am I feeling that tightness in my chest? And counterintuitively by really leaning into those negative feelings or emotions, they go away.
1: Yeah, Steve is a—he's a bit of a mentor of mine, in fact, and he actually wrote a approbation of a previous book that I wrote. So he—he uh, he definitely has had a huge influence on my work. I think uh, acceptance is the starting point. The question is, can you actually use anxiety in a positive way in your life to increase your relationships with others, your connection with yourself, to start to really parlay that into pursuing higher goals and dreams that's That's really where uh, you know act as the sort of foundation point for for my approach.
0: Well, something I've done as I, I've coached flag football for my son and his friends for the past couple of years, and there's a few boys who get really anxious before a game, and they'll be like, "Oh my gosh, I just have a lot of anxiety." And you can see them starting to go down that anxiety spiral where they're, they're going through this catastrophizing, like, what if I do this during the game? And then they start um, beating themselves up like, oh, why do I feel like this? I'm why just do little, I feel this like, way? Mm-hmm. Why is going on? And I had to stop and be like, hey, hey, you know, look, it's, it's perfectly normal to feel nervous or anxious before a big game because it means it's important to you. Like you want to do well. That's great. It's okay just just feel it, it's going to go away. And then I I also try to reframe it. I say, hey, you know, that feeling of anxiety, that's just your body's way of getting ready to take on this this challenge. And it seems to help reframing it. It's like, hey, you can use that energy to do well on the, the football field.
1: Yeah, it's exactly what teachers and mentors need to be doing these days. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen nearly enough. Usually it's like, oh, you feel anxious? Oh, something's really wrong. Like, that's a problem. You should really speak to someone about that. And we sort of uh, you know just reinforces this sense that we can't function in an anxious way. Sometimes people play their best game when they're anxious. Comedians, I can't tell you how many comedians I've had who come who've come into the Center for Anxiety offices, often plagued with anxiety, hilariously funny and plagued with anxiety because you got to be on. You know you're doing improv. You you got to be. You have to be on in order to do, you know, comedy in front of hundreds of people. And if a joke fails, you got to be able to recover quickly. I mean, it's really anxiety provoking and that's good. That, that actually is part of the strength of comedy is that, you know, it's it's predicated on uh, on being on your game.
0: Right. You could fall flat on your face. That's what makes it exciting.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: you also talk, you highlight there's a lot of athletes who have a ritual, like some of them just throw up before a game. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, that's what they do. That's how they get ready for, because it means that the game's important to them. If they if they don't do that, if they don't have that, I'm feeling nervous, I'm throwing up, they often play worse because they don't have that edge that they need.
1: Yeah, we often misinterpret today, unfortunately, our anxiety that something's wrong as opposed to recognizing that, oh, hey, this is actually, you know, my, my adrenaline is starting to flow through my body here and that's preparing me for actually a higher level of performance. Like, It is often amping you up and keeping you on your game. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors.
0: For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Okay, so if you feel those feelings of anxiety, don't go down the anxiety spiral, don't catastrophize, don't beat yourself up, don't say this is a big problem because that will just make things worse. Antidote is the positivity spiral, the positive spiral. And you can do that by Do you feel those negative, anxious feelings. Just sit with them. And then also, you maybe you do some reframing. Like, well, how can I use this to allow me to excel in whatever task I'm about to do or in my relationships? We'll talk more about the relationship aspect of anxiety because I thought that was really interesting. So you mentioned that most people don't respond with the positivity spiral. So what are the counterproductive ways in which we try to manage our anxiety?
1: Yeah, your number one counterproductive way is by avoiding it and by shutting it off, by squelching it, by trying to reduce the amount of distress you know that's kind of the equivalent of going to the gym starting to do your workout and being like "Oh you know what this is uncomfortable I'm not gonna do this you're not gonna build your muscles it's just the way it is if you avoid it if you avoid all the distress now I'm not saying we need to you know be facing a nine out of ten on the anxiety scale on a daily basis you know obviously that's too much you know that's gonna lead to the equivalent in the gym would be whatever, however many hundreds of pounds of, uh, of barbells you're you're lifting, which is beyond whatever you know, whatever your current capacity is. But I definitely think we should be moving into the area of a four or a five, even on a daily basis. Like when I'm pursuing a big dream and a big goal, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Uh, my stress level is high. I'm facing it. I get it in my chest. It's like it's an uncomfortable thing, and. uh, and that's good. That's like an indication that I'm on, that I'm on the right track. So I, I think we need to flip into a completely different relationship with our anxiety compared to the way we currently see it, which is as a disorder and a disease and something's wrong.
0: Okay. So the person with social anxiety, the way they might manage the anxieties, they just avoid social situations completely because they don't want to feel that.
1: Yeah. And people who are afraid of heights won't go in elevators or they won't go up in a plane. And people who have panic attacks are going to avoid any situation that might lead them to panic. I've had patients who stopped riding the subway because they didn't want to panic when they were underground. I've had patients who stopped uh, stopped going over bridges, stopped going through tunnels, uh, stopped traveling completely. I, I had a patient who stopped going to the supermarket. She would not leave her house because she was so terrified that she might have a panic attack and die. And you know, these are real-life situations that the anxiety Um, If it leads into avoidance, it can just take over your life as opposed to being like, whoa, hold on, I got to actually face this and get that opportunity to build that inner strength. And once they do that by facing it through what we call exposure therapy, that can be a huge uh, catalyst for bravery, for really moving oneself forward towards flourishing.
0: Well, yeah, let's talk about exposure therapy. How does that look in a clinical setting? And then can people do this? If, you know, Let's say someone has mild anxiety with social situations. Could they do this exposure therapy on their own?
1: Okay, two great questions. I'll tell you what it looks like first. It looks a little bit like death. And uh, what I mean by that is people face their specific anxiety head on in a structured way. So if you're afraid of spiders, then yes i do have the name of a spider wrangler that i can call and he will bring over tarantulas to my office now of course we don't start off with live tarantulas it's usually videos it's pictures it's maybe going to a zoo you know or, or some sort of a, you know a na- museum of natural history kind of deal but eventually yeah you're playing with spiders in the office and it's very uncomfortable and the person's you know has super high levels of anxiety and i kid you not 2 to 3 hours later Two to three hours later is often all it takes. They are able to actually tolerate the anxiety that they have been avoiding, sometimes for years. In terms of doing it at home, you know, we we like to say, "Don't try this at home, kids." But uh, in all seriousness, you can try a little bit. Like I, I might, you know, just uh, approach some of these things. Like if something makes you uncomfortable to watch uh, on uh, on the screen, you know, I would stay in that a little bit longer than pulling away from it. But, you know, it's not a bad idea to have a coach when you're training for something big, and it's not a bad idea to have a therapist when you're trying to train for the anxiety to build your resilience and anxiety.
0: Okay, so you've got some serious anxiety, a coach therapist would be really helpful to guide you through this exposure therapy.
1: Another way
0: people often avoid anxiety or it allows them to do the thing that makes them anxious but not be there mentally or kind of checked out is uh, substances. How have you seen your patients use different substances?
1: Yeah, so we were speaking a lot about social anxiety beforehand. Social anxiety and alcohol abuse are like brother and sister, you know, very common, especially among college students, especially among males, I'll add, that, uh, although females as well, where people feel socially anxious and, you know, they got to get their liquor courage, as they say, you know that's really kind of dangerous territory firstly it can clearly lead to substance abuse and alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence and all sorts of other issues there but the other thing is that you know if if you need a drink in order to be in a social situation you're never going to learn how to feel truly comfortable and how to develop closer relationships with people and that's a skill that can leave i mean i should say without that skill you can you can feel pretty lonely and pretty disconnected and i think ultimately we all want that you know level of you want to call it emotional intimacy or connection or you know, whatever language you want to use. And being able to lean into the anxiety actually can help us to get there. Um, so that's one way that they're related.
0: You talk about another response people have whenever they go down that anxiety spiral, start going down it, is worrying. Uh, how is worrying different from anxiety?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the clinical science on worry is really interesting. People who worry a lot tend to have low levels of anxiety almost forever. And the reason why is because the worry, believe it or not, it's a behavior that people engage in in order to keep their anxiety at a low level without actually facing the truth that there's so much that we can't control in life and there's so much that we can't know. You know, when we worry, we're like, what if I got sick? What if I lost money? But it's not like, really, what if that were to happen? People don't actually face the real possibility of those terrible situations, which is genuinely terrifying. It is genuinely terrifying and perilous, but that leaning into the real anxiety beneath the worry is where the opportunity for resilience lies.
0: Okay. So worrying is kind of a superficial anxiety. You got it. Okay. So if you're a worrier and you find yourself on that worrying cycle, anything, any advice on getting out of it?
1: Yeah, this is a tough one, and this is one where therapist intervention is probably going to be even harder because it's just it's a little bit uh, amorphous. It's a little bit harder to actually do. You know, if you're afraid in exposure therapy, if you're afraid of, like I said, spiders before, you're afraid of heights. So okay, you can physically get into an elevator and look out the the window. It's hard, but you know what you got to do. With worry, you got to actually sit and imagine the worst case scenario, and to do it for five minutes a day at a specific period of time, and to really delve into the depths of your worry. you know That can be harder to do. People can do it on their own, of have seen it. But that's the kind of thing where it's usually, you need a little more guidance and someone to, to give you a little bit more of a push from the outside because it's so mental, it's really in your head.
0: So just to clarify, what's the positive version of worrying? So worrying is kind of productive because it's not actually causing you to confront the thing that's actually making you anxious. It's true. What would the, the the flip side of that look like?
1: Um, the flip side of that is actually becoming brave and uh learning to accept and to tolerate how little is within the scope of our knowledge and control because we're human beings, we can only know so much we can only control so much, and actually coming to peace, coming to terms sort of you know the, the analogy I'll give you is like this. I have this exercise I do when I get on a plane where I look at the this aluminum box that I'm about to enter, and I, I touch the outside of the of the, uh, of the plane, and I walk in over the threshold. And I sit down, and I buckle my seatbelt, and I say to myself, David, you are not in charge for the next however long. Let's say it's a two-hour flight. You are not in charge for the next two hours. You're not going to fly the plane. You're not going to know where it's going. You can look on the screen, but like at the end of the day, you don't know. And we have to learn to be okay with that, and to embrace the unknown, to embrace the lack of control, and to sort of man up yeah. <laughs> along those lines.
0: My experience with worrying, going on the lines that it's a superficial anxiety, that I think one of the problems with worry that I've seen is that it makes you feel like you're doing something, but you're not really doing anything.
1: That's well put. Yeah. It's an attempt to convince yourself that you have control that you really don't have.
0: Right. Right. So yeah, you're just constantly thinking about You're going through all these different situations. I could do this. I could do that. And you find yourself eventually just going through the same two or three things over and over again. And you realize, okay, this is actually not doing anything. I just have to accept that. I don't know what's going to happen. There are certain actions I could take, um, but I don't have control over the outcomes of those actions.
1: No, you're just going to do the best you can and the rest, you just got to give it up. Like it it might work, it might not work. And therein lies the the challenge, but therein lies the opportunity to be more emotionally resilient and to to accept the limits of our control. You know, that's That's part of being human.
0: Okay, so anxiety in relation to ourselves, our anxiety can kind of, I like the idea that the anxiety can be a signal to what's important to us in life or a signal to how we can excel or where our strengths might lie, but we might be afraid to embrace that. And we've talked about some tools you can do uh, avoiding the anxiety spiral, embrace the positive spiral. I like this idea in the book you had about how anxiety can either disconnect us or connect us to others. Yes. So, how can anxiety lead us to be disconnected from others?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, so men in particular, I think are pretty bad at this in our culture. And the reason why is because. You know when we feel anxious, and we're humans, so you're we're gonna feel anxious sometimes. Like let's let's acknowledge it. Your fight or flight system is gonna get triggered every once in a while, erroneously with the anxiety spike. What do you do? Do we actually acknowledge that and say, "Hey, I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable right now"? Now it seems like not like the most guy thing to do, but if you want to develop emotional connection, you know, uh, I I would say you know generally speaking, especially with females, it, it's gold. It's just gold. It's the best way to open up and to show that feeling. There's a vulnerability that comes with it, and I think it can really truly enhance uh, our connection with others. And it allows people to drop their guard around us and to actually be with us and connect with us on a different plane. Um, but you know, it's it's gutsy. It's a gutsy move, you know, to put it out there and to say, "Hey, I'm feeling you know, I'm feeling anxious. I'm having a hard time."
0: Something you talk about in the book is that some people who are really anxious about relationships, they might see that as a a weakness, right? But you actually, this idea that the anxiety can be a strength, those people who are really anxious about relationships, whether like, okay, how's my marriage? Does this guy, does my boss think I'm a loser or not? They're constantly thinking about that. These individuals, they can like they can read people better because they're more more attuned to like what people are thinking, feeling, doing, et cetera.
1: That's definitely the case. There are these categories of people and people who are flourishing. Everything's going well for them. They got a great business. They got a really nice car. They've got a great house. They've got everything flying for them. Often are misreading the emotions of others around them. Typically that's the most hated boss, you know, because he like doesn't pick up on how other people are really feeling and and uh, people don't like them, The kids usually hate him. You know? I've seen I've seen this a lot in in the clinical setting. But if you look at like the anxious guys, people who are a little more um, you know, more likely to feel uncomfortable in certain situations, and they actually care about what other people think. They're more in tune with other people's emotions. Their relationships are often closer and better, and that can predict people's happiness as we age to a much greater extent than our level of success.
0: But just as there's like a an anxiety spiral with ourselves, right? We we experience the, those feelings of anxiety, and then we can go down that. Okay catastrophize and then self-judgment. Mm-hmm. This can happen in a relationship. So someone might be in a relationship with, uh, let's say, you know, some guys dating a, a woman, but he's anxious about the state of the relationship. Yeah. And he starts going down this spiral of like checking in and kind of becoming needy and like, oh, are you okay? What what do you think about our relationship? Or oh, I'm really sorry. Like, And then it becomes like, it's coming from a good place because like the guy really wants to make the thing work. But he becomes so obsessed with it that it becomes off putting.
1: Yeah. And sometimes it destroys the relationship.
0: It destroys the relationship, right? They become overly needy and attached.
1: Yep. Yeah. Or angry, by the way. People yeah. sometimes they, oh, what do you mean? Why'd you say that? And they because they're taking it personally when like she didn't mean it personally. <laughs> like she was just saying what she said. And but he he's emotionally reactive because he's not aware of his feelings. It's sort of the fight response or the flight response. Like the clinginess is one side of it and the other side is getting angry. And uh, yeah, both of those responses are maladaptive and not going to build your, your connection. And if you care about her, then, well, that's, uh, I think, be honest and be open instead and embrace the anxiety and say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about a relationship. Like, I really like this and I like where it's going. I'm, I'm wondering where you stand. And it's hard to put yourself out there and to sort of, you know, and if she's like, no, nah, I'm not so sure. And, oh, that's that's too bad. You know, I, I really kind of like this thing, and I hope that changes. In the meantime, you know, whatever, whatever your plan is, but it's hard to like embrace your anxiety and actually put it out there. But it really builds connection,
0: right? You have to put it out there, and then again, accept that you have no control of the outcome.
1: No, she might say no. She might say yes. Who knows? It's right. not up to you.
0: And, and I think this is why. Uh, you know, one of the factors that might be contributing to you, you read a lot about young people having a hard time with relationships these days. And I think it goes back to this idea of a sense of control. Like we feel like we can control every aspect of our lives, including our relationships. So we want our dating life to be per- perfect, our mar- marriage life to be perfect. And so we try to do all these little tactics to like control everything. But that just makes us more anxious about those relationships, which just makes it harder to have those. Positive relationships.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, all relationships are real relationships and great relationships are, are messy. They're just messy. You know, people have miscommunications and misunderstandings. They, you know, they rub each other the wrong way. They have these interactions which are problematic and these patterns, you know, that often stem from childhood and butt up against each other. And and, you know, therein lies the opportunity to actually create real connection. I think it's a lost art. In our society, the art of the art of love, if you will, I think it's a lost art. And uh, not not to our not in our favor.
0: Uh, so you mentioned anger. Um, oh, yeah. how can anxiety be a source of our anger?
1: Now, when I see angry people, almost always, almost always, the root of it is anxiety, but they're not expressing it, and sometimes they're not even aware of it. And it's amazing. We talked about this at the beginning that the anxiety response is based on fear. Which is called the fight or flight response. Remember, fight. So, fight is anger, and that's often what happens when you're when somebody does something that makes you anxious. You have a choice. You can say to them, "Hey, what you're doing is making me uncomfortable," or I mean, some sort of language around that, or you can just say, "Like you jerk, like stop doing that. What's wrong with you?" You know, and blaming them as opposed to sharing how you feel. And that blame, that anger, is the exact opposite. That's leaning away from your anxiety. That's um, covering it up making it harder to connect with others and uh, usually pushes people away.
0: Okay, so if you have an anger problem, maybe look at, okay, what am, I, what am I potentially anxious about in life and then work on that.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's hard to get there because anger is usually a way of avoiding the feelings of anxiety. Um, so you might need a therapist to actually probe you know, the depths of that. We call it a, a secondary emotion anger because it's a response to the primary emotion of anxiety. Sometimes sadness, but often it's anxiety, most often.
0: Gotcha. So with anxiety, there's either the flight, fight uh, response, right? Fight or flight. So anger is the fight response. Like, I'm going to get really angry about this. I'm going to do something about it. The flight response would be, I'm going to avoid the situation completely. You're arguing that if you really want to thrive with anxiety, that's like the third way, you just kind of have to sit with it and be okay with it
1: sit with it tolerate it and then find a positive way to do it which might mean expressing it and saying hey i'm really having a hard time right now i'm having you know an anxious moment um and if you can't do that in a romantic relationship then at least doing that with a friend um or with a therapist for that matter you know just being able to get it off your chest is really really critical and something that uh we have to learn how to do as humans
0: Something you do with your practice is you bring in spiritual traditions from around, yes. around the world to help people with their anxiety. How have you done that with your work?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say it's dependent on the patient. And, you know, this is only for people who want it. You know, when I was writing this book, um, the, the publisher, HarperCollins, they said, well, we want, you know, a third of the book to be devoted to this subject because we think that people in general are gonna are going to want spiritual approaches. And I said, sure, like I'm very happy to do it. And I, I try to use really accessible language, which cuts across different religious traditions. I, I say it's for people with um, any faith or none at all. And uh, I stand by that. I think the spiritual concepts in the book are very broadly applicable. So, just that sort of uh, preamble. From a faith perspective, or from a spiritual perspective, I should say, what's wrong with anxiety? You know, it's a very uh, biomedical, materialistic, uh, reductionistic approach to say that human beings should never feel anxious, should never feel uncomfortable, should never have any pain. And I just think when we take that approach and we apply it to our emotions, you know, the spiritual lens is that, well, maybe there's a higher purpose. Maybe there's something greater in our lives. Maybe we're here to self actualize and to bring out our potential in this world. Maybe we're here to build connection with each other. And emotional distress can enhance every single one of those processes. Every one of those processes. So here's a place where I think the spiritual traditions approach anxiety so much better than the current biomedical model.
0: Um, So what are some practices that you've done with your patients to incorporate the spiritual aspect?
1: You know, one of them is understanding that, and I talk about this in the book, what are your biggest goals? What are your biggest dreams? What do you really want to be doing? You know, Is your current job, is your current day-to-day life reflective of your core values of what you really, truly want to do? And if the answer is no, usually anxiety is involved because it's scary to pursue your deepest dreams and to try to bring out your latent potential in the world. Even to think about it can be really terrifying because what if I fail? What if I fail? What if I can't quantify my results? What if it has to be some sort of qualitative complicated way of evaluating whether I really achieved it. And I won't even know. Nobody will know. So it, it gets, you know, it gets anxiety provoking. And, uh, but I think from a spiritual perspective, that, that that's the case. Anxiety can actually enhance um, our spiritual growth and our self-actualization because it's part and parcel of self-expression.
0: Right. And I also, you talk about just looking at spiritual traditions from history and around the world. All of them usually have a tenet about human beings, they don't control the world. Like you, you are not the center of the universe and your goal in life is just to figure out how to navigate the world in which you have no control.
1: At the center, and clinical science has borne this out, at the center, at the core of anxiety is an intolerance of uncertainty and an intolerance of uncontrollability. If you need to know and you need to be in control, you will feel anxious, I promise. You are going to feel anxious. And I think spiritual traditions teach us that there are human limits. There just are human limits. And whether you believe in something greater or even if you don't, I think all of us can understand that you know we didn't choose whether to be born, when to be born, where to be born, and a zillion other factors that are have a colossal impact on our day-to-day. There's so much that we don't know, so much that we can't control. And can we come to a place of acceptance uh, of those terms? I think spirituality can enhance our uh, acceptance and our awareness of our human limits
0: so there's a few books that i've read during my lifetime that have hit on this idea that humans the the, the limitations of humans and your inability to control everything mm-hmm. Bhagavad Gita sure a really big one I like get the opening scene you have Arjuna basically having Anxiety attack, right? He's right. about, he's about to see, he sees this great war unfolding before him, and he says, "My limbs sink, my mouth is parched, my body trembles, the hair bristles on my flesh, the magic bow slips from my hand, my skin burns, I cannot stand still, my mind reels." And then he gets a, a lesson from Krishna, saying, "Yeah, you don't have control of everything. You don't you can't control the outcomes." Book of Job, another yes. good one yeah, that I like to read. I, I know uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, love to read the Book of Job, particularly during the Civil War. Uh, the Odyssey of Homer, another one where character doesn't have any control over the outcomes. And then another one that I really like is Lonesome Dove. People who've listened to this podcast a lot know I'm a big fan of Lonesome Dove, but I think that novel, one of the themes is just how life is constantly changing and you don't know what the outcomes are going to... Be, but you just have to deal with it. You just kind of have to, have to live with it and accept whatever outcomes come your way. So, those are some, like, I guess we can call them spiritual books that have helped me out.
1: I love that. Sounds like a great collection. And uh, it sounds like something that's also missing from the education of many young people today to our detriment. You know, we, we live in a society that prizes itself on predictability, on controllability, on uh, quantitative measures, as opposed to really embracing the limits of our. Humanity
0: and another one. You talk about this one in the book. One of my other favorite books, uh, "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl. Sure.
1: Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Viktor <laughs> Frankl. I mean, him, you know, his whole story was uh, incredible and really having to to accept really incredibly trying, horrific circumstances and finding meaning despite that, or maybe even because of it. I'll say.
0: So we've talked about a lot in this conversation. Is there like, like let's say someone's listening to this podcast and they've they've got an issue with anxiety right It's a problem in their lives. What's like one thing that someone could start doing today to start turning their anxiety into a strength
1: The one thing that I would say is do something that makes you anxious once a week. It doesn't have to be a huge thing It doesn't have to get you to an eight or a nine on a scale of zero to 10 of anxiety. But try to do something that's going to get you to a four or a five. And when you feel anxious, when you feel anxious, in response to that, instead of squelching it, allow yourself to experience it. Take a look at your watch, see how long it's going to last. And if you don't fight it, I'd be shocked if it lasts more than five minutes.
0: I love that. And I, I think that that goes back, what you just said goes back to our, the beginning of our conversation, right? Like each time you do that, you know, it's like you're going... To the gym and doing a workout. I mean, you're building your bravery and your resilience muscle. Well, David, where can people go to learn more about the book and your
1: work? Sure. So, my author's website, which actually has a free giveaway of a 12 page guide that people can use whether or not they buy the book, um, which is based on the nine tools. So, people are welcome to check me out at dhrossmarin.com. Um, The book's available wherever. Uh, books are sold, including uh, Audible. um, And uh, even on Spotify, I actually saw it. So the audio book is available. And I love to hear from people about uh, the topic of anxiety and about the book, and I can be contacted through the website.
0: Fantastic. Well, David Rosemarin, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Hey, thanks for the great chat. Really appreciate you having me on your show.
0: My guest here is Dr. David Rosemarin. He's the author of the book, Thriving with Anxiety. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, dhrosemarin.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash thrivingwithanxiety. We can find links to our resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us review novel podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. reminding you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.